Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Lisa Johnson. This week, January 11, 2024, we feature articles on apixaban for stroke prevention in subclinical atrial fibrillation, ripotrectinib for ROS1 fusion-positive lung cancer, acaramidus in transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy, low-dose calcium supplementation in pregnancy, and the financialization of health in the United States. A review article on peripartum cardiomyopathy, a case report of a woman with bleeding after a snake bite, and perspective articles on the overdose crisis among U.S. adolescents, on accuracy and equity in clinical risk prediction, on centering women of color in academic medicine, and on the buddy system. Apixaban for Stroke Prevention in Subclinical Atrial Fibrillation by Jeff Healy from McMaster University, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and colleagues. Subclinical atrial fibrillation is short-lasting and asymptomatic and can usually be detected only by long-term continuous monitoring with pacemakers or defibrillators. Subclinical atrial fibrillation is associated with an increased risk of stroke by a factor of 2.5. However, treatment with oral anticoagulation is of uncertain benefit. In this trial, 4,012 patients with subclinical atrial fibrillation lasting 6 minutes to 24 hours were randomly assigned to receive apixaban at a dose of 5 mg twice daily or aspirin at a dose of 81 mg daily. Trial medication was discontinued and anticoagulation started if subclinical atrial fibrillation lasting more than 24 hours or clinical atrial fibrillation developed. After a mean follow-up of 3.5 years, a primary efficacy outcome of stroke or systemic embolism occurred in 55 patients in the apixaban group, 0.78% per patient year, and in 86 patients in the aspirin group, 1.24% per patient year. In the on-treatment population, the rate of the primary safety outcome of major bleeding was 1.71% per patient year in the apixaban group and 0.94% per patient year in the aspirin group. Fatal bleeding occurred in 5 patients in the apixaban group and 8 patients in the aspirin group. Among patients with subclinical atrial fibrillation, apixaban resulted in a lower risk of stroke or systemic embolism than aspirin, but a higher risk of major bleeding. Emma Svenberg from the Karolinska Institute, Stockholm, writes in an editorial that the previously published non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants in patients with atrial high-rate episodes, NOAA-AFNET-6 trial, showed that anticoagulation with adoxaban in persons with subclinical atrial fibrillation was not associated with a significantly lower risk of a composite of death from cardiovascular causes, stroke, or systemic embolism than placebo, but was associated with a higher risk of death or major bleeding. 
That trial was terminated early owing to safety concerns and futility. In that trial and the current one by Healy and colleagues, the risk of ischemic stroke per patient year was low in the control groups, 1.1% in the placebo group in the NOAA-AFNET-6 trial, and 1.21% in the aspirin group in the present trial by Healy. These values are lower than the 3% per year risk of ischemic stroke reported among patients with clinical atrial fibrillation who were treated with aspirin alone. A key takeaway from the trials is that the incidence of stroke among patients with subclinical atrial fibrillation is low. Although initial risks were low, they were not zero. And in the trial by Healy and colleagues, the risk was substantially lower in the apixaban group than in the aspirin group. In addition, disabling or fatal strokes were reduced by half in the apixaban group as compared with the aspirin group. Major bleeding events were more common than ischemic stroke events in both trials. Going forward, we must balance the increased bleeding risks with the risk for disabling strokes. In patients with subclinical atrial fibrillation, vital components of care management include shared decision-making before oral anticoagulant treatment, management of modifiable bleeding risks and coexisting conditions, and close monitoring of progression to clinical atrial fibrillation. Repotrectinib in ROS1 fusion-positive non-small-cell lung cancer by Alexander Drillon from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, New York, and colleagues. ROS1 fusions are oncogenic drivers that occur in up to 2% of patients with non-small-cell lung cancer, NSCLC. The early-generation ROS1 tyrosine kinase inhibitors, TKIs, that are approved for the treatment of ROS1 fusion-positive NSCLC have anti-tumor activity, but resistance develops in tumors, and intracranial activity is suboptimal. Rebotrectinib is a next-generation ROS1 TKI with preclinical activity against ROS1 fusion-positive cancers, including those with resistance mutations such as ROS1 G2032R. In this Phase 1-2 trial, the efficacy and safety of repotrectinib was assessed in 519 patients with advanced solid tumors, including ROS1 fusion-positive NSCLC. Objective response occurred in 79% of the patients with ROS1 fusion-positive NSCLC who had not previously received a ROS1 TKI. The median duration of response was 34.1 months, and median progression-free survival was 35.7 months. Response occurred in 38% of the patients with ROS1 fusion-positive NSCLC who had previously received one ROS1 TKI and had never received chemotherapy. The median duration of response was 14.8 months, and the median progression-free survival was 9 months. 59% of the patients with the ROS1 G2032R mutation had a response. 
The most common treatment-related adverse events were dizziness in 58% of the patients, dyscusia in 50%, and paresthesia in 30%, and 3% discontinued repotrectinib owing to treatment-related adverse events. Repotrectinib had durable clinical activity in patients with ROS1 fusion-positive NSCLC, regardless of whether they had previously received a ROS1 TKI. Adverse events were mainly low-grade and compatible with long-term administration. Efficacy and safety of acaramidis in transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy by Julian Gilmore, from the University College, London, and colleagues. Transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy is characterized by the deposition of misfolded monomeric transthyretin, TTR, in the heart. This condition is a restrictive cardiomyopathy that causes heart failure, usually with preserved ejection fraction. Acaramidus is a high-affinity TTR stabilizer that acts to inhibit dissociation of tetrameric TTR and leads to more than 90% stabilization across the dosing interval, as measured ex vivo. In this Phase three trial, 632 patients with transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy were randomly assigned in a 2-to-1 ratio to receive twice-daily acaramidus hydrochloride, or matching placebo, for 30 months. The four-step primary hierarchical analysis included death from any cause, cardiovascular-related hospitalization, the change from baseline in the N-terminal pro-B-type natriuretic peptide level, and the change from baseline in the six-minute walk distance. The primary analysis favored acaramidus over placebo. The corresponding win ratio was 1.8, with 63.7% of pairwise comparisons favoring acaramidus and 35.9% favoring placebo. Together, death from any cause and cardiovascular-related hospitalization contributed more than half the wins and losses to the win ratio, 58% of all pairwise comparisons. NT-pro-BNP pairwise comparisons yielded the highest ratio of wins to losses, 23.3% versus 7%. The overall incidence of adverse events was similar in the acaramidus group and the placebo group, 98.1% and 97.6% respectively. Serious adverse events were reported in 54.6% and 64.9% of the patients. In patients with transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy, the receipt of acaramidus resulted in a significantly better four-step primary hierarchical outcome containing components of mortality, morbidity, and function than placebo. Adverse events were similar in the two groups. Two randomized trials of low-dose calcium supplementation in pregnancy by Pratibha Dwarkanath from St. John's Research Institute, Bangalore, India, and colleagues. 
The World Health Organization recommends 1,500 to 2,000 milligrams of calcium daily as supplementation, divided into three doses, for pregnant persons in populations with low dietary calcium intake, in order to reduce the risk of preeclampsia. The complexity of the dosing scheme, however, has led to implementation barriers. These investigators conducted two independent randomized trials of calcium supplementation in India and Tanzania to assess the non-inferiority of a 500 milligram daily dose to a 1,500 milligram daily dose of calcium supplementation. In each trial, the two primary outcomes were preeclampsia and preterm birth and the non-inferiority margins for the relative risks were 1.54 and 1.16, respectively. 11,000 naliparous pregnant women were included in each trial. The cumulative incidence of preeclampsia was 3% in the 500-milligram group and 3.6% in the 1,500-milligram group in the India trial and 3% and 2.7% respectively in the Tanzania trial, findings consistent with the non-inferiority of the lower dose in both trials. The percentage of live births that were preterm was 11.4% in the 500-milligram group and 12.8% in the 1,500-milligram group in the India trial, which was within the non-inferiority margin of 1.54%. In the Tanzania trial, the respective percentages were 10.4% and 9.7%, which exceeded the non-inferiority margin of 1.16. In these two trials, low-dose calcium supplementation was non-inferior to high-dose calcium supplementation with respect to the risk of preeclampsia. It was non-inferior with respect to the risk of preterm live birth in the trial in India, but not in the trial in Tanzania. Peripartum Cardiomyopathy, a review article by Zoltan Arani from the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Peripartum cardiomyopathy is a form of acute and sometimes severe cardiac degeneration that leads to clinical heart failure during pregnancy or in the early postpartum period. The disorder is generally defined as maternal heart failure with systolic dysfunction, left ventricular ejection fraction less than 45%, that develops in the last month of pregnancy or in the first five months after delivery, in the absence of known pre-existing cardiac dysfunction. In some cases, however, the disease occurs earlier in pregnancy or more than five months after delivery. Peripartum cardiomyopathy complicates approximately 1 in 2,000 births worldwide, with substantial variation among regions, including rates as high as 1 in 300 births in Haiti and 1 in 100 in parts of Nigeria. In the United States, the disease is four times as likely to develop in black women as it is in white women. One-third to one-half of cases occur in women with hypertensive diseases of pregnancy, including preeclampsia. Peripartum cardiomyopathy is now a leading cause of maternal death in many parts of the United States and around the world. 
Approximately 60% of cases of cardiogenic shock during pregnancy or in the early postpartum period are caused by peripartum cardiomyopathy. Although cardiac function typically recovers in more than 50% of affected patients, morbidity and mortality are high, with some patients requiring a left ventricular assist device or cardiac transplantation. Peripartum cardiomyopathy can thus be devastating at a critical time in the lives of affected persons, their families, and their newborn children. In this review, the author discusses the epidemiology and clinical presentation of peripartum cardiomyopathy, as well as the mechanistic basis for potential therapeutics. A 25-year-old pregnant woman with bleeding after a snake bite. A case record of the Massachusetts General Hospital by Carl Njuafe from the Homegrown Solutions for Health, Yawunde, Cameroon, and colleagues. A 25-year-old pregnant woman presented to the emergency department of the Poli District Hospital in Cameroon with vaginal bleeding, abdominal pain, and leg pain. One hour earlier, the patient was bitten by a snake while walking with her family. On presentation to the emergency department, she reported fatigue, dizziness, abdominal pain, and pain and numbness in her left lower leg. The physical examination was notable for mild conjunctival pallor and swelling in the inferior left lower leg, which had been tied with a tourniquet. The leg was tender with ecchymosis, and two fang-like bite marks were visible on the left foot. The patient had diffuse pain in the lower abdomen, intermittent contractions, and vaginal bleeding. Fetal movement was detected on palpation. Other relevant clinical features included a low platelet count, possible hematuria, elevated blood levels of urea nitrogen and creatinine, a low hemoglobin level, and clotting abnormalities, as measured by the 20-minute whole blood clotting test. The patient reported that she was at approximately seven months gestation and had received no prenatal care. She had been accompanied to the emergency department by her family members, who had brought the dead snake with them for identification. Given that she reported that a snake bite had occurred approximately one hour before presentation, envenomation was the most likely diagnosis for the patient's bleeding disorder. Venom from certain types of snakes can cause coagulopathy and trigger the development of intermittent contractions in pregnancy due to the effects of snake venom phospholipase A2. In the north region of Cameroon, this type of coagulopathy can be caused by the venom from a carpet viper bite. Two vials of antivenom diluted in 250 milliliters of normal saline were administered immediately on the patient's arrival in the emergency department. On the fourth hospital day, the patient delivered a live baby boy. However, despite aggressive treatment with antivenom and blood transfusion, four days after a snake bite by a carpet viper, the patient died. The Financialization of Health in the United States, a Medicine and Society article by Joseph Dovbrook from the University of Chicago and colleagues. From early fears of a burgeoning medical-industrial complex to more recent critiques of corporate greed in medicine, 
Observers have long decried the profit motives embedded in the U.S. healthcare system. While much of the focus has been on corporate influences in healthcare, a critical dynamic has remained largely obscured financialization. As defined by social scientists and historians, financialization refers to the growing influence of financial markets, motives, institutions, and elites in our economy and society. This dynamic encompasses the expanding influence of financial actors, including commercial and investment banks, private equity firms, venture capital firms, and other types of investors, and a shift in the business of non finance related entities away from trade and commodity production toward new financial channels and maneuvers. Proponents of private finance point to the substantial mobilization of capital enabled by new financial markets and actors that can be deployed to create value for health, whether by funding biomedical innovation or supporting the implementation of new care models. Yet an analysis of contemporary finance must also contend with the process that the late health economist Uwe Reinhardt described as value shifting in healthcare, a phenomenon in which value is taken away from some members of society and channeled to the owners of capital. Reinhardt recognized the considerable costs borne by U.S. households and government in nearly all domains of the health sector. Ultimately, the financial sector's increasing grip on the healthcare system invites a pressing question. Is the country getting a good deal? In this article, the authors distinguish financialization from corporatization and privatization, trace the financial sector's remaking of the U.S. healthcare landscape, and document public policy's role in encouraging these changes. The Overdose Crisis Among U.S. Adolescents a perspective by Joseph Friedman from the University of California, Los Angeles, and Scott Hadland from Mass General Brigham, Boston. Every week in 2022, the equivalent of a high school classroom's worth of students, an average of 22 adolescents, died of drug overdoses in the U.S., according to data from the CDC. Drug overdoses and poisonings are now the third leading cause of pediatric deaths in this country, after firearm-related injuries and motor vehicle crashes. Overdose deaths among adolescents 14 to 18 years of age more than doubled between August 2019 and March 2020. Since then, this crisis has further intensified, with 5.2 deaths per 100,000 adolescents in 2022. This increase in mortality has occurred despite adolescent drug use becoming less common. Reported use of various types of illicit drugs has decreased in recent years. In 2002, 20.9% of U.S. 12th graders reported having used an illicit drug besides cannabis in the previous year. By 2022, the percentage had fallen to 8%. An important driver of increasing risk is the widespread availability of counterfeit pills containing illicit fentanyl. 
Fentanyl is now involved in at least 75% of adolescent overdose deaths. Fentanyl was initially predominantly found in powder forms as a replacement for heroin. More recently, however, fentanyl has increasingly been pressed into counterfeit pills resembling oxycodone, benzodiazepines, and other prescription drug tablets, which are far more likely to be used by adolescents for experimentation. To stem the rising tide of adolescent overdose deaths, the authors believe clinicians, parents, educators, and policymakers must act quickly. Steps can be taken to equip adolescents with the knowledge and tools they need to keep themselves safe. For example, widespread implementation of up-to-date overdose prevention education is essential. Accuracy and Equity in Clinical Risk Prediction A Perspective by Emma Pearson from Cornell Tech, New York When Professor Pearson was 19 years old, she learned that her mother carried a BRCA1 mutation, which confers a high risk of breast and ovarian cancer. Health risk estimates have shaped her most important life decisions. This has convinced her that we have a profound obligation to patients to predict their risks as accurately as possible. As a professor of computer science and population health, Professor Pearson builds algorithms that predict health risks with a particular focus on ensuring that they perform equitably across groups. Over the past few years, she has seen a welcome and overdue surge of interest in algorithmic equity. But she has also watched, disquieted, as her field has sometimes, with the laudable intention of ensuring equity, deviated from their basic mandate to predict patients' risk as accurately as possible. Equity and accuracy need not conflict. Improving the accuracy of risk prediction can often improve equity as well, but we have made choices that reduce accuracy in the name of equity, ultimately achieving neither. Professor Pearson believes the pragmatic approach is to fight a two-front battle. While we maintain our advocacy and pressure to collect better data and wait for healthcare systems to do so, we should also do the best we can for patients who need to make life-or-death decisions today. That means making the most accurate predictions we can from the data we have, not the data we wish we had. The author wants for other patients what she wants for herself. Give us your best estimate of our risk, engaging deeply with the context-specific inequities that distort risk predictions, so we can decide what to do. Centering Women of Color to Promote Excellence in Academic Medicine A Perspective by Christina Mangurian from the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine and colleagues. The recent U.S. Supreme Court decision striking down the use of affirmative action in university admissions threatens decades of progress in the areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion in academic medicine. 
Although women accounted for the majority of medical school enrollees in 2022, they represented only 28% of full professors, 23% of department chairs, and 27% of deans that same year. And gender-based disparities in compensation persist at the highest levels of academic medicine. Only about 3% of full professors and department chairs were women from underrepresented groups, including Black, Latina, and Indigenous women. These authors propose centering efforts on retaining and advancing women of color, and in particular, Black women, at multiple levels, including among students, trainees, staff, faculty, and institutional leaders in academic medicine. By centering women of color, the authors mean that leaders should focus attention, decision-making, and policy interventions specifically on dismantling the structural racism and sexism that exist in academic medical institutions. Institutional leaders can center women of color in their diversity efforts by implementing or enhancing policies and procedures in several areas. First, they could establish institutional declarations and action plans. Second, leaders could take steps to identify and eliminate potential funding disparities within their institution. Finally, foundational training on structural discrimination and effective ways to mitigate it should be required for all institutional leaders and encouraged for all other faculty members. Buddy System, a perspective by Eleanor Menzin from Boston Children's Hospital. At the idyllic lakefront camp where Dr. Menzin spent her childhood summers, free swim was the highlight of the day. Campers were assigned a swimming skills pier to be their swim buddy. At regular intervals, the lifeguard blew a piercing whistle, stood on the peeling white chair, and called, Buddy check. The swimmers had a few frantic seconds to locate their buddies, grab their hands, and hold the clasped hands above their heads. For the staff, this was a safety check. For a shy camper like Dr. Menzen was, it guaranteed that somebody had to swim close enough to find her hand. Often, the buddy turned into a friend. Medical training provides us with automatic buddies for many years. College lab partners, anatomy dissection groups, co-resident teams, and fellowship classes all supply the support of built-in companions with shared interests and experiences. Often, parallel career trajectories result in shared life experiences outside medicine, and thus people with whom to commiserate. But when the PGY-numbered years end, doctors often find themselves adrift in the sea without an assigned swim buddy. Dr. Menzen was fresh out of residency when she joined her practice 23 years ago. She learned from and is grateful for all of her partners. But no single experience was as transformative as having a buddy. As with all foundational relationships, finding a professional buddy is a hard job with high stakes. Anything with potential value holds power to wound if it fails. But when they work, these relationships turn burnout-inducing isolation into supportive longevity. If you are early in your career, look around. 
Find a swimmer who seems alone. Tread water nearby. Listen for the whistle and hold their hand high when it sounds. That relationship may sustain you through many seasons. In our images in clinical medicine, a 26-year-old man presented with a one-week history of a rash on his hands and feet. He also reported having had a fever, which had resolved six days before presentation. Physical examination was notable for scattered, partially blanchable macules around the wrists and ankles that merged into erythematous patches on the ventral and dorsal surfaces of the hands and feet. A serum B19 IgM antibody test and a PCR assay were positive for parvovirus. A diagnosis of papular purpuric gloves and socks syndrome in the context of parvovirus B19 infection was made. The classic rash associated with parvovirus B19 infection is a slapped cheek pattern on the face, but other distributions of rashes may be seen. The acral rash seen in papular purpuric gloves and socks syndrome most commonly manifests in adolescents and adults. The patient was reassured about the self-limited nature of the viral infection, and one week later, the rash had abated. In another image, a 69-year-old man presented with a two-week history of progressive intermittent dyspnea that worsened when he was lying down. He also reported a two-year history of hoarseness and a 30-pack-year smoking history. He worked in a noisy factory and frequently yelled to communicate with co-workers. On physical examination, there were loud expiratory wheezes that were heard best over the neck. On imaging, a mass causing partial obstruction of the upper airway was seen. During bronchoscopy, a large vocal cord polyp was found to be causing intermittent airway obstruction in a ball valve fashion during expiration, shown in a video at NEJM.org. Vocal cord polyps commonly manifest with hoarseness. Such polyps result from chronic irritation of the vocal cords, such as from smoking, reflux, or vocal strain. Immediately after bronchoscopic polypectomy, the patient's dyspnea resolved. Histopathological analysis confirmed the lesion to be benign. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our podcast. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.